0: Welcome to the Paul Post Podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or C-Post, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at ProfPaulPost. Professor Post, uh, congratulations on your Telly Award. Can we see your podcast becoming a vodcast soon?
1: <laughs> no, I'm not going to be going the vlogging route a- anytime soon, uh, um, nor am I going to be putting out uh, videos on TikTok or anything like that, you know, doing little quick uh, clips here and there and so forth. So, no, that none of that's going to be happening anytime soon.
0: I'm not sure whether your listeners will be uh, disappointed or extremely pleased. Um, (laughs) Let's go to uh, what's been happening. So in our last podcast, uh, we talked about the possibility of international talks between uh, Russia and America about technology along the lines of nuclear discussions. And lo and behold, it turned out you were right, that that became part of the discussion. What else happened in that visit with Putin?
1: So I think overall the visit went pretty much along the lines of what people expected. And that means not much. <laughs> and specifically going back to the idea of there was a lot of dialogue about dialogue, that I think it it established some ground rules. Um, Biden came away with a much different I th- I wouldn't say it like this. I wouldn't say he came away with a different per- uh, with Putin giving him a different perception, but I think Putin came away from the talk perceiving that Biden is indeed not going to be giving Russia much slack. I think that was kind of one of the key objectives that Biden had that is consistent with, with what he has been saying even before he became president, you know, voicing that Russia was going to be an enemy and I think he did a lot during this summit to kind of set that tone, set those ground rules that, look, we're interested in you not being disruptive. We want to have some avenues for cooperation, but we also are not going to be letting up anytime soon when it comes to things like sanctions, for example. So I think that's really what came out of these talks was it set that tone. So if you recall, there was this meme uh, that was just going around uh, last week after the summit where it was showing pictures from the Helsinki summit that Trump had with Putin. And in those pictures, it shows Putin standing there with a big smile on his face and Trump looking a little bit kind of downtrodden. And then they were comparing that to pictures of Biden standing there looking very self-assured and Putin looking kind of disinterested or even a bit upset. Now, of course, those are just images and screenshots, and you know, people can take pictures at any moment. But I think there is a grain of truth to those images in that at the Helsinki summit, Trump very much set a tone of, I believe Putin. That was the case with um, questions about election interference. He said, I believe Putin. Putin said we had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. In contrast, Biden setting the tone that we do not expect you to be disruptive. There's a variety of issues we need to work on, nuclear weapons, cyber, Ukraine, potentially also areas of cooperation, maybe the Iran deal, maybe climate. There, There are areas where they could be cooperating, but he did not set a tone of, oh, Putin is great. Putin's my friend. I believe everything Putin says. It was a very different tone. I think at the end of the day, that was the objective of this meeting.
0: What else came from the the European visit?
1: You know there were there were some things that came from the European visit that I think went a little bit under the radar. First of all, things that received more attention. Let's talk about those first. So you had the g seven, and at the g seven, we talked about this last time, you had the agreement on, uh, like a minimum tax, corporate t- tax, and so forth. And of course, right away, the UK was already saying, well, we kind of want the city of London to have an exception to that. I mean, so it's already playing out exactly as you could foresee. You don't have to be an IR scholar to see it that way. But that was something that got a lot of attention, efforts for climate. These were issues that were talked about at the G7. Of course, at the NATO summit, a lot of discussion about the U.S. commitment, reassuring our allies, and the, America is back. That was a big theme of the, the NATO summit. And and it made sense then that since, well, gee, since Biden's already in Europe, he's already at the G7, already meeting with NATO, then let's meet with Putin as well. And I think that that made a lot of sense, especially if you know, you're know you trying to minimize travel for the sake of COVID and and maybe even for climate reasons, right? Let's not keep jetting back and forth. But another meeting happened, I think, went a little bit under the radar. This did involve Biden, but there's also meetings happening in Vienna regarding the Iran nuclear deal. And, of course, this does not include the United States, but the U.S., some U.S. diplomats did have conversations in Vienna Prior to those meetings, they also talked to their Russian counterparts regarding those meetings, and Russia is part, officially part of those conversations. So that was something else that I kind of saw that was happening. It seemed like there was a lot of, a, very much a lot of diplomacy happening last week, both at the high level, but also more subtly. And I think last week would be very productive for the purposes of continuing these kind of conversations. Again, part of it being setting the tone with Russia but also looking at something like the Iran deal, where actually the U.S. took advantage of being there, having Biden in on the continent to at least have some side door conversations or I guess, you know, backhaul conversations regarding the Iran deal. So I think that these are those were some of the things that were accomplished last week.
0: I'm glad you mentioned um, NATO, a discussion uh, last week with someone Is NATO a military alliance or just a political organization? And does it need reinvigorating?
1: This question is one that I've been thinking about. I mean, I think about this question a lot. I've written quite a bit on NATO, but especially recently, Dan Ryder and I, Dan Ryder at Emory University and I just had a paper published in the Texas National Security Review and TNSR Is a publication, academic publication. It's kind of, it's it's almost like a mix between international security. Uh, For those people who follow this, it's like a mix between international security and foreign affairs. So it's a little bit more uh, academically rigorous than your typical foreign affairs article, but it aims to try to reach that foreign policy audience and so forth. And so we published a piece in there about. Very much on this issue, but also thinking about more broadly, and it was specifically looking at the role of forward-deployed troops. Why does the U.S. have troops deployed abroad? What is their purpose? And, of course, we have many troops in NATO. This has been a big point of conversation. This was something that Trump brought up many, many times. Should we keep troops in Germany? Should we move the troops to Poland? How many troops should we have in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, the Baltic States, what they refer to as the eastern flank of NATO. This is a, a big issue. This was one that Trump talked a lot about. This is a big point of conversation whenever the NATO summit is happening, is what do we do with the U.S. troops and, and NATO troops in general, all the troops and NATO allies in general, what purpose do they serve? And the argument that we put forward was that the traditional view of forward-deployed troops is they're really intended to serve as a, quote, tripwire, which is if Russia were to invade, their whole purpose is, as Thomas Schelling famously said, to die. Because what that will do is that will then commit the United States to retaliate, right? Because our troops were killed, we have to retaliate, and it's a signal of our resolve. What we argue in the piece is that that's not the right way to think about forward deployed troops— Because it's also not the right way to think about the incentives of countries like Russia that you're using against – that you're using these troops to deter. Russia is not looking to conquer the Baltic states. Russia is not looking to conquer Ukraine. Russia is looking to do things like they've done with Crimea, like in eastern Ukraine. They're looking to accomplish what we call a fait accompli which is can we accomplish something where we can move in troops very quickly, take a small piece of land and hold that, and then say, okay, well, what are you going to do about that, <laughs> right? And, so, and basically be able to over quickly overrun a small force, take control of the territory, and then stop and hold it. That's the fate. accompli. And a tripwire force just simply can't stop that. Also, that's all that the other side's looking to accomplish. So what we argue is that you have to have, if you truly want to deter aggression, you need to have larger forces. And so where this comes back to NATO is it's really a question of, if you want NATO to function as an effective deterrent against Russia, which I still think is a fundamental role of NATO, if it's to be a military alliance, then the conversation shouldn't be about just having U.S. troops there. It's you need to have more. You need to have more than just maybe 5,000 troops in the Baltic states. You may have to have 10,000 troops there. You might have to have 15,000 troops there. Is there the appetite within the U.S. government and the NATO allies to commit those kind of troops to prevent a fait accompli by Russia towards the Baltic states, for example? And so that's really the question. And that was part of the conversations that was happening last week during the NATO summit is, you know, what is the continued role of U.S. troops in Europe? Do we need to actually have more given the actions being pursued by Russia? But if NATO is to continue as a military alliance, it's going to have to address that question.
0: Also high on the list is the discussion about Iran. And, of course, since we've spoken last time, they've got a new leader But Jake Sullivan is downplaying that. He's saying, hey, it's not going to make a lot of difference. It's the Ayatollah Khokamani that will make all the difference. What's your take on that?
1: I think there is some truth to that the president of Iran does play a role in terms of setting the tone because the president of Iran does serve as like the public face. So even though the Ayatollah is the Supreme leader, the Ayatollah is not a public figure, um, doesn't come out you know, is not the one that's speaking on the media and doesn't, you know, does have a Twitter account, (laughs) does have a Twitter account, but, but it, you know, Typically, when you think about uh, Iranian leaders being even like on television giving public speeches, the kind of talks we think about, you know, we think about the comments by Ahmed Demirchian when he was president, right, and about you know, uh, wiping Israel off the map and so forth. You know, those those kind of comments come typically from the president. However, the actual decision making apparatus is indeed in the hands of the Ayatollah. And so, from that standpoint. The decision of whether or not Iran will pursue a nuclear bomb is ultimately in the Ayatollah's hands. It is not about the president. The president has a lot more influence on domestic policy and, again, has kind of this public-facing role when it comes to foreign policy. But the actual foreign policy decisions are in the hands of the Ayatollah. And so I think in that respect, I agree with Jake Sullivan. So
0: where do you think that's going to go next?
1: So going back to what I was sharing before about how last week there were some unofficial talks, um, and not between the U.S. and Iran, but with the U.S., with some of the other countries who are officially negotiating with Iran, I still don't see a fully engaged, constructive role for the U.S. right now. And I know that's surprising to some people because they think of the Biden administration as, oh, we're going to come back in and, and restart the Iran deal. But If that was going to happen, that would have happened, and that's not going to happen. The Biden administration is—well, to be frank, just as Biden has a much more hawkish view towards Russia than I think Obama did, also I think Biden has a much more hawkish view towards Iran. And it's not—he doesn't have the same view, I think, of like the idea of maximum pressure— That was pursued by the Trump administration, but I actually think there's a lot more alignment between the Biden administration and the Trump administration in terms of the role of being more assertive in the diplomatic realm as well as potentially in the military realm if need be. Then there was – I think there's – I think Biden and Trump were closer on that than Biden and Obama were, and so – when you take that, you add to it that this new president Iran is apparently not someone who's like known for being the most diplomatic individual. I don't see necessarily room for an immediate role for the United States in trying to broker an Iran deal.
0: Staying in the region, um, we're seeing more and more troops, uh, U.S. troops being withdrawn from um, Afghanistan and things beginning to heat up there. What's the outcome going to be there? What's your prognosis for Afghanistan now?
1: There's there's a lot of concern about Afghanistan at the moment. A lot of people have been highlighting just in the past week that it seems that the Afghan governments, their forces are starting to be overrun by the Taliban, that there is real concern that once U.S. troops are fully gone, they basically will take back over. And this is this is a bit of a reckoning. This is a bigger issue than just Afghanistan. And the issue is this. Should the U.S. always try to do something, even if it can't do anything? That is a fundamental question. There are some problems in the world that the U.S. or other nations simply cannot fix. And there's been a mentality in U.S. foreign policy for a long time that even if we can't fix it, we have to try. We have to stay engaged. This has been a big part of the argument for keeping U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Okay, yes, we can't fix the country, and and part of that is— The U.S.'s own fault, right? But regardless of how the country is in its current state, the question is, can it be fixed? Fixed meaning, can it be stabilized in a way that is peaceful and through a peaceful process? And the answer to that is, no, it doesn't look like it can. And so the question is, but should the U.S. at least stay there to try to, say, minimize the harm, minimize the damage? And what you're seeing with Afghanistan right now is that debate. Is I think there is – I mean there are people – there are definitely people in the policy space who think the U.S. could still fix all the problems. But I think the more – fun I think the for me what I'm observing is the better question and the one that's gone the, – the debate that has more traction is not so much a recognition that the U.S. can fix the problems, but should the U.S. just fully withdraw given that there are these problems? And there are, of course, people – and I will admit I'm on this side of it where it's just like the U.S. has been there for 20 years have we really made things better or have we actually made things worse? And it's time to withdraw. There's others who say, yes, we've been here for 20 years. No, we're not necessarily going to be able to fix the problems, but if we leave, it will get even worse. And so you're at the end of the day, you're facing you know, no good options. And as I want to emphasize, right now we're seeing this with Afghanistan, but that's kind of the nature of a lot of foreign policy issues where there's not really a good option. And then the question is, should the U.S. continue to try to stay involved even if it doesn't seem like there's actually a good outcome possible.
0: So we started with um, Biden's trip and have taken a look at um, Iran and Afghanistan. So let's go back to Biden's trip. Tell me, it's one thing to say the US is back. How do you think, how much do you think the Europeans are gonna trust that he's back for good or America is back for good, sorry?
1: There's two ways to answer that question. One is to just straight up answer your question, which is, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, do they think, you know, do they trust that Biden will be back? The other way to answer the question is to say, does it even matter? right. That's the other way to answer the question. Uh, So let's start with that second one. Regardless of what the Europeans think, oh, yes, the U.S. is back. Oh, we like this tone. This is much better. This is more partnership. Team America. This is great. There is definitely that change of tone, but- On a fundamental level, is it actually different from the policies pursued by the other administration? So for all of Trump's bluster, the U.S. was supporting policies that were helping to deter Russia with respect to, like, cyber. Yes, we had an impeachment hearing about it, but—or not even an impeachment hearing. He was impeached about this, but at the end of the day, the U.S. still continued to support Ukraine in its military efforts against Russia. So— You still saw the U.S. is engaged in Europe on these big issues. Yes, there was shifting around of troops. We're going to move troops out of Germany, but what are we doing? We're moving them to Poland. And that's actually something that a lot of NATO planners, military planners think need to happen anyways, is we need to be moving again, going back to the notion of the eastern flank. That's where the troops should be located. So that's just a way of saying, and we've kind of hit this theme several times on the podcast, but it's just a way of saying that, At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how the Europeans perceive the U.S.'s willingness to be cooperative. What matters is what policies are being pursued. And when you look at it that way, the policies are very similar. There's a lot more continuity going from Biden to Trump than there was change. And indeed, continuity going from Obama to Trump to Biden. So at the end of the day, that's why I say that it kind of doesn't matter because where the proof is in the pudding is the policies being pursued.
0: Well, I'm going to go a little bit nerdy on you now. Michelle Phelps tweeted, here's my hot take of the day. In stack classes, we need to focus more on data cleaning and variable recoding. And Paul Post liked that.
1: Why? <laughs> this is Yeah, this is getting very nerdy here. Yeah, so change your... How, not not talking about... Uh, foreign policy? How do we analyze foreign policy? How do we analyze international relations rather than talking about it? Yes, I 100% agree with that because something that comes across with my grad students as well as my undergrad students when I teach them, like this course I teach for my grad students called Quantitative Security, where we learn about the use of data to study international relations um, and how it's been done historically and currently. A key lesson that my students realize is when it comes to actually doing analysis, like the actual analysis analysis portion is very short. Like if you're running a linear regression model, that's like one line of what could be hundreds of lines of code, but the hundreds of lines of code are all of that other stuff that was highlighting that tweet, formatting the data, cleaning the data, recoding variables, renaming things, realigning. This is merging in data sets. That is the bulk of what we call data science Is that kind of work? And so, yes, it's like learning how a linear regression model works is great, but that shouldn't be the bulk of your time in a stats course because it's actually at the end of the day, that's actually a very small part of what you're doing. There's a lot more work that has to be done at that kind of like mundane level. Also, I would go one step further with that tweet. And I would say not only do we need to spend more time on that, but we also need to spend more time on conceptualizing what do we mean by our data. This goes to the even earlier step, that whole like data cleaning data. That's once you actually have the data, but you have to collect the data first. Data don't just like, you don't just open up and, oh, look, there's data. They have to be created, right? If we think about the project that Bob Pape's been working on, right, about the January 6th participants. there's a lot of just like digging that has to happen, getting these re- records, requesting these reports, getting this, and then you start to actually turn that into something that's machine readable. but we have to spend time about well what is what are the data that we're actually acquiring? Because those to me that's key to then thinking about what are the problems with those data, what are the potential threats to inference, right? So if you're relying, for example, if you're relying on police reports, for information? Well, okay, that immediately suggests one of the threats to inference, such as selection. Okay, well, only people who would have been arrested would be in police reports, right? Okay, so where would we then go to get beyond that, right? But that's a question that's not a statistical, it's not a mathematical question, it's a conceptual question. It's, okay, how did my data come about? That should point to things I need to be aware of, when it comes to threats to the inferences I draw from those data. So that was why I liked that tweet, was because I fully agree with that. Most of data analysis is a conceptual exercise, as well as a pull up the sleeves and just get in and start creating that data.